Okay, well, I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me this morning to Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And we're taking a uh, one-week break from our series in the book of Ruth, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be back to it next Sunday. Uh, but today it's Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And since we're jumping into the middle of the book, let me try to quickly bring us up to speed. Uh, Paul has been confronting and correcting uh, false doctrine. And at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he has uh, shifted gears to, at this point, begin to apply some of that doctrine to help Christians live um, the believing life, a Christian life. And uh, Paul, in this passage that we are looking at today, is going to I think help us answer a question that, that all of us face as Christians some way or another. And that is, how do, we, how do we deal with sin in our lives? How do we grow as Christians? How can we pursue change? And Paul's going to give us, I think, a great deal of help here as, uh, as we look at this text. So let's turn to it. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, picking it up in verse 5. Let's hear God's word. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these too you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, <coughs> slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, when Kelsey and I moved uh, to Johnstown, we were first-time home buyers. Really had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And uh, we bought an older home knowing that it was going to require a fair bit of work. Uh, it's a fixer-upper of sorts. I think the worst bit of news has been that uh, from the beginning we knew this, that all of the wiring in the house was the old knob and tube wiring, and it would need to be ripped out and, and replaced. And I want you to think about Paul's letter this morning as, as a renovation project, where he is ripping out the faulty wiring of false doctrine. There have been these false teachers that have come in, caused trouble in the church, and so he's been stripping out the bad wiring and, and putting in the, the new wiring of, of sound doctrine and faithful teaching. You know, when Kelsey, Kelsey and I, before we rewired our home, things, there were just things that didn't work. Uh, light that wouldn't come on in the kitchen, switches that didn't do anything. Uh, I climbed up in the attic and found live electrical wiring just wrapped around nails. Uh, our bathroom, uh, the electricity ran from the hallway closet to the bathroom through a lamp cord. It was just a disaster uh, waiting to happen. And, <coughs> excuse me, there's bad wiring all over the place. And, and the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 23, 
The, the teaching that they were using to try to live out their faith, like, like bad wiring, it kept failing them. And things were just waiting to, to blow up. Paul says to them, these things that you are using in chapter 2, they're, they're of no value, no help in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It just doesn't work, and it could in fact be dangerous. And so after tearing out the bad wiring here, here in chapter 3, Paul is still doing a little bit of rewiring work to help, help us live the Christian life. And, and the heart of his message is that a Christian is someone who has been united to Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who has been brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the defining reality of the Christian life. And so at the end of chapter 2, he says, you died with Christ. And at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you were raised with Christ. And so a Christian is someone who has died with Christ and been raised with him to walk in newness of life. And since that's true, since when you became a Christian, you died and were raised to new life in union with Jesus, here then is how you are to live. That's the logic of this passage. And so in our passage, verses 5 through 11, Paul is he's giving negative counsel. He's going he's gonna to tell us how to deal with sin. He has more to say. In the next set of verses after this, he offers positive counsel. The things we're to put on after we put off uh, the filthy garments of our old life and dress uh, and we learn to dress in a way that is now fitting with our new identity in Jesus Christ. But, but first of all, in our verses, he's, he's answering the question, how do we deal with sin in our lives? Uh, he calls it in verse 5, what is earthly in you? How do you put to death what is earthly in you? The remaining sin, the remaining corruption uh, in the Christian life. Paul, Paul answers that question in these verses with, with two word pictures. In verses 5 through 7 he says dealing with sin is like an execution. You have to put it to death. And then in verses 8 through 11 dealing with sin is like changing your clothes. Taking off the filthy garments of your old life and, and dress in a way that is fitting, that is becoming, that is suited to your new God-given identity in Jesus Christ. So dealing with sin is first of all like an execution. Secondly, dealing with sin is like changing your clothes. Those are the two things I want us to consider this morning. Starting with the first, dealing with sin is like an execution. Take a look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Paul is calling us to put to death our much-loved sin. Dealing with sin is like an execution. That, that's the imagery that Paul uses. You have to kill it. You have to kill it dead. But if you're anything like me, you have what we might call a, a love-hate relationship with your sin. Because the fact of the matter is that you love your sin. And you hate that you love your sin, but you love it nonetheless. You know, there's something about it. It's, it's uh, something about sin. It's, it's, it's easy, it's comfortable, it's familiar. Sometimes it just, it just seems to fit, right? It's like that old T-shirt that you've worn for years or that pair of jeans that just seems to fit perfectly. It's convenient, it's comfortable. 
It just seems to suit us. But Paul says, since you have died and been raised to new life in union with Jesus Christ, since you've been born again by the Spirit of Christ, you believer, now you cannot let sin live. You must kill it. Some of you have heard uh, John Owen's famous line. I know some of you heard it last week because it was quoted in Sunday school where John Owen says, be killing sin or what? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's precisely Paul's point here. But I think there's a, there's a ruthlessness and a radicalism that Paul is calling for here that I suspect we are often missing. I know it's often missing in my own life when it comes to making progress in our Christian lives, becoming more like the Lord Jesus. We want, we want soft, smooth, easy, level roads that don't require very much effort from us, don't we? Here's how I'd like progress to go. I'd like it to be like the aging process. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's not really something that I have to do anything about. It just happens over time without me even really noticing. But I don't want to be, I don't want to be an executioner, right? Having to, having to wield the sword every day, blowing uh, mortal blows to, 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 to sin that is corrupting my life, sin that I've, I've long cherished and I've become so comfortable with and so accustomed to. So here's how I think it often goes, and just see if you recognize this pattern in your own life. We we hear God's word or we read God's word and then uh, our conscience stings with, with recognition, right? We see, we see the sinfulness of sin in our lives. We see that we ought to do something about it, that we need to deal with this particular sin in our lives. But then another voice begins to speak up to drown out the voice of conscience saying, you know, let me live, says your pornography addiction. Let, let me live, says your judgmental, gossiping heart. Or I'll, I'll tell you what, says your, your festering bitterness. You can, you can turn a new leaf. You can, we can start fresh. Start being more patient with your kids. You can read the Bible every day. Make sure you're in church every Sunday. Just let me be. I won't, I won't trouble you too often. You don't, need to be, you don't need to be serious about this. You don't need to take drastic, radical measures. I mean, after all, just look over there. Look at the person down the pew. I mean, don't, don't actually look at the person down the pew. Now that's a sinner. You're not so bad as that. And I think maybe, maybe you're just getting carried away with all of this put your sin to death stuff. I mean, everything in moderation after all. You can manage this. And if that sounds familiar to you at all, Paul's instruction stands in stark contrast, doesn't it? You must ruthlessly, without mercy, put your sin to death. And he doesn't leave it at the level of abstraction, does he? he? He starts naming specific sin. So look again at verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, <coughs> and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now this is the first of two lists of vices. The next one's in verse 8, which we'll come to in a moment. But a few things I want you to notice about this first list. 
Notice, first of all, how he starts with the physical, outward expression of a, a, a particular sin. Sexual immorality. And then what he does is he begins, to, he begins to peel the layers back. He identifies the inner motive so we understand that sin is much, much more than just an outward behavior issue. Sin runs deep to the very heart of our humanity, you know, warping and distorting and turning us away from the Lord and his law. And so he says, behind a, a sexual immorality, there's impurity, unclean patterns of thinking and speaking, which desensitize us to the corruption. And behind that, there is passion, an inflamed, inordinate emotion that has been allowed to run its banks. And along with that, there's evil desire, a, a longing for what God has clearly forbidden. And by back of all of it, Paul says, there's covetousness, which is idolatry. That covetousness has to do with the orientation of, of the heart, the, the disposition of the inner self away from what God wants toward what God forbids. It's centered on self and, and comes to believe that you know, this thing, this person, this experience, this feeling is the one thing that I must have to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, to be happy, to really be me. And slowly and by degrees we have made for ourselves an idol pursuing it, actually Scripture would say serving it, bowing before it uh, with reckless abandon. And so please, I just want us to notice the way that Paul is arguing here. Not just the specific sin that he's talking about here, but the way he is arguing. Because one of the biggest ways I think sin can deceive us is to get us to think that Deep heart motives, our inner thought life, our inner desires, the emotions that are driving us, what's going on in our hearts, that stuff doesn't really matter all that much. What really matters is what you do externally. All that really matters is your behavior. So long as you don't do this, that, or the other thing, so long as you conform to an external standard of behavior, you're, you're doing just fine. You're okay. <laughs> so what if your heart is festering with all sorts of unruly desire and wicked emotions and sinful motives. You see what Paul is doing? He's showing us here in verse 5 as he traces the roots of our sin all the way back to the heart that dealing with sin requires more than merely the modification of our behavior. Now, of course, behavior is important. What we do with our bodies matters because our bodies are for the Lord. So if sexual immorality is the issue, you know, pornography, or let's just generalize, let's just broaden it out. Any sexual activity outside of the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, we must take radical steps to break that pattern, to break the end that activity. We have to take decisive, radical action to change the cycle. My friends, if we don't, if we don't agree with that, then... We're simply not listening to Jesus. I mean, it, it, is, it is as basic as that. We are not being faithful disciples. Matthew 18, Jesus said, 
If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You see, Jesus and Paul are calling for the same thing. Immediate, decisive, radical action to deal with sin. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. We need to do that, but we're also being taught here that that's not all that we need to do. We need to go, we need to go deeper. We need to drill down, as Paul is showing us, to the, to the core of the issue, to examine our hearts and to kill sin at its root. And so if we're going to kill sin at its root, what are... What do we need? There's a lot we could say here, but let me just mention four things very quickly. Uh, First of all, let's be clear about this. There's no way to deal with the wrong motives of the heart that are inclining you to sin unless you have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. So Paul, Paul is not offering here a prescription for superficial morality as though following Jesus were just about you know saying and doing the right things cleaning up your act that's not the message the the message is that you have been united to Jesus Christ and you are not who you once were because of God's work you have passed from from death to life you are spiritually alive and so now you must go to war with your sin so dealing with sin begins with belonging to Jesus Christ, having gone to him for mercy. And the second thing has to do with the means that God has given to us to engage in the fight. I've known so many Christians who are crying out, why why am I not making any progress in the Christian life? And then you ask them one question, how are you doing with the means that God has given you to make progress in the Christian life? Oh, actually haven't been using those things at all. So what are the things God has given to us? We, we can think about them privately, publicly. We sometimes call them the means of grace, the word, sacraments, prayer. The fact is you will never make progress in killing sin if you neglect the weapons God has given you to enable you to make advance in combat with the unwelcome enemy in your heart, your besetting sins. So you neglect the word, you neglect your soul. Neglect prayer, you neglect your your soul. But if you stay in the word and you cling to the God of, of the word in prayer, knowing your weakness, knowing your frailty, knowing your vulnerability, calling out to him for grace and help, dear friend, you will, you will make progress. The third thing is an extension, I think, of the second. You, you must not neglect the assembly of the saints you need to be in your local church every Sunday as much as providence permits so that your pastors your elders your fellow brothers and sisters can can look you in the eyes and speak truth to your heart so that you can't hide it's so easy to hide isn't it and fourth you need to have a Going a little bit further with this idea, I think you need to have a band of brothers or, or sisters who, who know you, who will tell you the truth, who will be honest with you, and with whom 
you can be honest. Dear brothers and sisters, we, we need to be a church where people are, are, are able to say without fear to, to the appropriate people, I, I, I need help. Will you help me? I need, I need accountability. I need you to check in on me. I need to be able to talk to you about this. See, sin, sin thrives in the darkness. So bring it into the light where it will shrivel and die. Confess your sins to one another is what the New Testament calls us to. Yes, wisely, but find, find someone to talk to. Paul is not calling us to a long, lonely fight with our sin, struggling all on our own. These are, these are battle plans, if you like, for the whole church to fight together in the, the great combat with your besetting sins. We need one another and we need to tackle it together. But maybe, maybe as you've been listening to this, you're, you're thinking, man, this, Jared, this just sounds like a bit much. I think you're taking this sin stuff a little bit too far and a little too seriously. I mean, is sin really that big of a deal? We'll take a look at verse 6 and see how seriously God takes it. You know, if you're wondering, do I really need to get this serious, this radical about my sin? Look at how seriously God takes it. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, all I want to say about this is don't you, don't you think that we should take sin <coughs> seriously enough that in some measure it reflects God's own attitude about it or towards it? You know, one day God is coming in Jesus Christ, we confess, to judge the world in righteousness for its sin and its rebellion. God takes sin very seriously and so should we. And before we move to, to the next picture of dealing with sin, just notice in verse 7 how, how Paul addresses the Colossians. I think this is so crucial for, for not just going to be crushed with discouragement. Because how tempting is it in, in our daily fight, in our daily struggle with our, our besetting sins, to, to become discouraged and tempted to just throw in the tile and give up and lie down and say, I, I, I'm done, can't do this. Look at verse 7. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. Now do you notice the apparent tension between verse 5 and verse 7? In verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. But the presupposition of verse 5 is that sin is a present reality in the Christian life. And then in verse 7, Paul speaks of sins that you once walked in. He speaks about sin in the past tense. So which is it, Paul? How do you, how do you bring these two realities together? Actually, I think reconciling them brings enormous help and encouragement to stay in the fight, to, to not give up, to keep going. Here's what Paul is saying. When you became a Christian, when you were united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, when you passed from a state of death to life, the dominion of sin was broken once for all. Your relationship to sin was fundamentally changed. Yes, you still fall into sin. Yes, you still struggle with indwelling sin and besetting sin. Yes, Sin still may entangle you and sin is still present and will always be until the life to come. But now sin is present, not as a harsh taskmaster, not as your Lord, 
but as an unwelcome guest. And that means it's not in charge anymore. It means you're not its slave anymore. It means you can kill sin. You can make hard-won progress in the Christian life. And, and therefore, you must engage in the fight. Don't give up. Don't, don't sign a truce, a peace treaty with your sin. In union with Jesus, you can and you must kill sin or sin will be killing you. Dealing with sin is like an execution. And secondly, dealing with sin is like changing clothes. The language is used in verse 8, but now ESV has it, but now you must put them all away. Better, I think, now you must put them off, all off, anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another now here's the second list of vices now notice that the first the first list moved from the outward behavior inward to the orientation of the heart now this list begins with the heart and works its way to the outward expression of what was in the heart but the the point is exactly the same both the deep motives and the expression in our thinking and are doing, all of it must be addressed. All of it must be dealt with. And this time, the issue isn't sexual immorality. The issue is interpersonal conflict. The issue is relational breakdown. Beginning in the seedbed of the human heart and bearing fruit in the way that we speak to one another in daily life. It starts with anger, wrath, malice, deep, festering attitudes hidden away inside of us, perhaps even unnoticed by others for a season. Because the way that we act and the way that we speak is actually intentionally designed to lead people away from the reality that is festering within our hearts. But here's the thing. Notice, despite our best efforts to the contrary, it all comes bubbling to the surface from time to time in slander, obscene talk, lying to one another. And Paul is telling us in a straightforward way that that behavior has nothing to do with the Christian life. No place in the Christian life. We're to put them off. Now Luke uses that same word back in Acts chapter 7 to describe the the stoning of Stephen as people took off their cloaks and lied them at Saul's feet. It's the same word here. We're to put off like an old garment our sinful patterns and behavior, we have to put them off because they have no place. They're unbecoming of the Christian life. Now, in the ancient world, let's make sure we understand Paul and we're not misunderstanding Paul. In the ancient world, what a person wore revealed their identity. You know, based upon what somebody was wearing, you could tell the difference between a, a slave and a master, a merchant and a Roman centurion, and so on. And so, so don't misunderstand Paul. He's not saying that you know, putting off sin in your life is something as superficial as changing your shirt, putting on a new coat or whatever. Now his, his point is <coughs> more profound than that. His point is you're no longer a slave to sin. So it's time to stop dressing like one. You know, in the rags of your old life, it's time to start dressing like the child of God you really are. Are be who you are. Be who you are in Christ Jesus. That's precisely how Paul is reasoning here. Look at verse 9. You have put off the old self with its practices when you came to Christ, 
And you have put on the new self, verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is who you are. You aren't who you once were. (laughs) You've been changed by grace, given new life in Christ. You're being remade after the image of your creator. So instead of idolatry, instead of being conformed to the image of an idol fashioned by you, you are by divine grace united to Jesus Christ through faith and you are being remade after the image of of your creator. He is at work remaking you and making you new. So all along the way in this passage Paul has been calling us to our duty to put sin to death, to put off the old garments and put on the new. But you see here is the undergirding gospel reality that makes all of this possible and so much more than some mere moral system. He said he's saying you are being worked on God God is at work in you to renew you in knowledge after the image of your creator. You see, it's not just that you are at work. It's that someone is at work in you. Both to to will and to work according to his good pleasure. See, God, God hasn't left you alone in the fight, Paul is reminding us. And he will finish. He will bring to completion what he has started. Does Doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that give you hopefulness in your sanctification? Doesn't that encourage you to to keep on, to keep pressing on? If you're like me, there are times when when you find yourself wrestling with the same old sins, thinking, oh, here we go again. I'm so discouraged, so weary, because every time I try to make progress, I stumble and fall again. And we're tempted at times, aren't we, to just give up, to give in. And to just coast along. But Paul is saying, you know, God is at work. God has given you this new identity. God will never quit on you. The work that he began, he will bring to completion. His promise is sure. So don't give up. Don't quit. Because the victory is certain. See, one day, brothers and sisters, no matter how much we have struggled in this life with particular besetting sins, one day we will, we will shine with the radiance of the of perfect moral likeness to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a gospel guarantee. It's his promise that one day you shall see him and, and be like him. That, that's, a, that's a promise God has given to us. And right now, he is about the work of renewing us and making us new. So in light of these realities, don't... Don't quit. Don't back off. Don't give up. The work that you are called to right now is to put sin to death, to put sin off. And because of God's grace to you and Jesus Christ undergirding and enabling it all, the work will not fail. Not because we're strong, not because there's anything special inherent in us but because of his promise and his grace. And so just notice, please, verse 11 as we wrap up before we come to the Lord's table together. You know, the consequence of sin and false teaching had brought division and tension and malfunction and dysfunction in the, in the Colossian church, a fracturing of their fellowship. But what is the consequences, uh, or what are the consequences of ripping out that bad wiring and replacing it with 
the, the, the good wiring of the gospel doctrine? What are the consequences? What happens in a church when church members are putting sin to death and putting off sin? Take a look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. See, the broken up fellowship that sin has produced is mended. And natural enemies, which that's what this list is, it's a list of people who are natural enemies, are made one in Jesus Christ so that you know, color, ethnicity, social status, education could not matter less because all are one in Christ Jesus and because Christ is all. You see, we have Christ in common, but one of the things <clears throat> that we need to understand here, I think, is Paul is helping us understand that our individual fight with sin isn't isn't just about our personal walk with the Lord. It, it affects the entire fellowship of the household of faith. We're, we're never merely isolated individuals living the Christian life on our own. And Paul is so, saying something here about our fighting against sin or our failure to fight against sin has implications for the life, peace, and fellowship of Christ's church. We have Christ in common, and to get where Paul is calling us to be. We, we have to do the hard work of putting sin to death when, when we realize that dealing with sin is like an execution and when we're unflinchingly resolved to do what's necessary to make a change. We will only get there when we, when we deal with sin like a, like a change of clothes. Put off the old filthy rags, dear friend. Why are you still wearing them? Why are you still wearing those old filthy rags when what is becoming of you is to live like the child of God who you really are in Christ? It's time to start living in light of that new identity in Christ. And when we do that, we see the glorious reality depicted in verse 11. When the church starts to live like that together, helping one another, then the multifaceted glory and wisdom of God is set on display for the world to see. Right? Instead of Instead of slander and filthy talk and lying to one another, we speak the truth in love. Instead of sexual immorality and lust and evil desire, desires, we treat one another as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in the household of faith. <clears throat> instead of interpersonal conflict and relational breakdowns, instead of anger and malice, we bear with each other in love, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. And dear friends, when the world sees that, it is a mighty, mighty testimony to the redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because there is no community in the world that has anything like what animates and unites the church of Jesus Christ. So may it be the case, dear friends, that when People look upon Trinity Presbyterian Church. They don't see a body of people arguing and bickering with one another, caught up in insignificant conflicts. But rather, may they see a people who are slaying their sin in the power of the Spirit of Christ Jesus and living in harmony with one another so that God gets all the glory. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we confess to you how often we have found it so easy to live as surface Christians, all the while harboring sinful desires and secret motives in our hearts. Thank you for the way that your word shines light into the darkness. And we pray that you would please do a work in us so that we are, first of all, real with you and real with ourselves and then real with one another. Enable us, um, Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, to walk faithfully uh, in step with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.